Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. As we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we have a shift in the conversation. Uh, what has to this point been a broad, sweeping, doctrinal conversation to the whole church now narrows down to very concise, very practical, very applicational, maybe we could say more intimate instruction. As it is with all of Paul's letters, we seem to go from broad, big ideas to small, family, church, local church issues. And like I said, there's not many memory verses from this section, but what we see here is a central instruction for the church about things that we might not otherwise think about, about things that maybe you've not even heard a sermon on before, the importance of going through these things as we do. So today, let's turn our attention to chapter 5, verses 1 through 16 in 1 Timothy, and let's hear the words of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have a younger widow marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Number one today, most importantly, I think, before we get into any of the rest of this, is this central principle. Number one, we are a family. 
We are a family. As a local church, the Bible uses lots of illustrations for the local church. It calls us the body of Christ, a temple, one new man, the kingdom of God, exiles in this foreign land as we saw in 1 Peter. But perhaps no example, no illustration, no metaphor is as central and striking as this one, that we are a family. As the children of God adopted into the family of God, we belong to him as his family. The Bible calls us children of God, the bride of Christ, brothers and sisters in the Holy Spirit. In fact, earlier in this very book, chapter 3, verse 5, Paul calls us the household of God. In chapter 4, verse 6, and many other places, Paul refers to these fellow believers as brothers, brothers and sisters. Back in chapter 3, chapter 2 actually, we began discussing men and women, husbands and wives. And now as we go into what we call family matters, we begin to talk about widows. And we'll talk about elders, and we'll talk about slaves and masters. The whole point is this, no matter where you were from, no matter who you are, no matter what your position is, no matter what your language is, no matter what money you have or what status you have, we are all one family through Christ in God. That's the point of the gospel, isn't it? One new man in place of the two. No Jew, no Greek, no male or female, slave or free, but all one in Christ as his family and co-inheritors of the gospel and the glory of God. And that's exactly where Paul's springboard is for verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat your younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. And Paul at the outset here, I think you can hear it in his tone maybe, he wants to counter a potential sin. Maybe a sin that was already going on in the church. Maybe something he's having to to rebuke when he says don't rebuke an older man. Maybe something has come up that's brought this to light. We heard last week when Pastor Matt preached in the, the previous passage that they were not to look down on Timothy because of his age. Let no one despise you because of your age. And we see the same thing coming up this week as we come into this chapter. He says, your older men ought to be treated as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. And this potential sin that Paul sets out to handle might look like this. The temptation to belittle or to disrespect older men. I'm a youngish guy, Pastor Matt is a youngish guy, Pastor Zane, just a few years older than me, is a youngish guy. We have some young deacons, we have many young men right here in the front, lots of younger men around the sanctuary. And sometimes it is a temptation for younger men to look at older men, to hear their opinions, to hear their conversations, to hear their ideas, and to disregard them as being old-fashioned, or to belittle them because of their age or mindset. Now, we say that and all the, all the older men perk up and say, that's right, young people, you respect us. But look, it goes on to the next part, doesn't it? To younger men, how should you treat your younger men, men, older men, not to patronize them or to disregard them because of their youth and inexperience, but to treat them as brothers, Same thing for older women. The sin that we might have to disregard and to belittle and to ignore older women. To run over older women and not hear their ideas or hear their opinions or put them in places of leadership because of some perceived inadequacy, age or otherwise. But treat these older women, Paul says, as your mothers. 
Now, the part about younger women is even more interesting because he adds a little tag at the end. This isn't just about respect for younger women. He says, younger women as sisters, and then he adds, in all purity. Meaning that there might have been some inclination in Paul to remind his church, to remind these people not to objectify in a sexual way younger women. My, how this is a word for the Southern Baptist Convention in 2022. And we just got through with all of this news cycle. It's not over, but the news cycle sort of died down with abuse within our own denomination. Pastors and youth pastors, countless numbers of them, countless numbers of victims that have been left in the wake of sexual abuse. How they would just hear this simple command from Paul that you treat your younger men as brothers and you treat your younger women as sisters with all purity. And not to do so is to violate the body and the sanctity of the church of God itself. Paul says when you devalue someone, When you set yourself up against someone because of age or whatever perceptions age brings on, you are abusing the body of Christ and you're not honoring the body of Christ. A right understanding of the church as God's people, God's family, would build godly relationships and would root out a lot of this junk. I think this would apply even in cases of rebuke, in what we call church discipline. If an older man is being sinful, or a younger man is being sinful, an older woman or younger woman, and they're unrepentant, and they're stirring up controversy and division or false teaching, false doctrine. You know, Paul has not been shy in this letter about telling us how to deal with false teachers and false teaching, has he? He doesn't say lay off because they're older or lay off because they're younger. That's not what he means here. He says confront it, refute it, and get it out. But even as you do... Even as you do that kind of discipline for unrepentant sin or false teaching, what's the goal according to Jesus in Matthew 18? That you might gain your brother. What does Paul say in Galatians 6 when when dealing with church discipline? If somebody needs to be restored, they've repented, they've confessed, they've asked for forgiveness, they're going to stop their unrepentant sin or their divisiveness and their false teaching. What happens, Paul says, when you restore them? Restore them with all gentleness. So even in cases when a rebuke or an admonishment or discipline is necessary, no matter the age, this is still at the cornerstone, isn't it? That they are your fathers, they are your brothers, they are your mothers, they are your sisters. And even in cases of discipline, you should be seeking to restore that relationship, not to sever it any further. Simple question for us. Is that how we conduct ourselves as a church? In your own mind, your own experience, I've been here almost only two years as opposed to Zane, who served here for 20 years, our staff, who's 20, Barbara, 40-plus years. Many of you have been lifetime members. You've been through much more here at this church than I have. Has this defined First Baptist Church? Has this kind of mindset between older and younger, the men and the women, has this defined this family, this household of God? Or if you're honest with yourselves... And I can say this because no church in the history of churches has been exempt from this. 
Has there been times, even in this very church, where things go awry and there's conflict and there's division and there's problems because we fail to obey this command? Do you see your older men as fathers in the faith? Do you see your younger men as brothers in the faith? And here's a question, older men, younger men. I didn't mean to motion that way. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. Older men and younger men. Here's the question. You say, yes, you'll respect me, younger men. Or younger men, you say, yes, you'll respect me as your brothers, older men. But the question for both groups is, are you acting that way? Are you living as a father in the faith to someone else? Or are you just the crotchety old neighbor? Young men, are you living as brothers in the faith in this body of Christ? Or are you just the know-it-all young whippersnapper? Older women, do we treat you as mothers in the faith? Younger women, do we treat them as our sisters in the faith? And the same question applies to younger women and older women. Are you acting that way? Older women, are you coming alongside of the younger women and treating them and teaching them and leading them in such a way where they would say, yes, that is a mother in the faith? Younger women, are you leaving, living your lives in purity and modesty, learning as a younger sister in the faith? We are the family of God. We ought to live and love each other as family. So many church conflicts arise right here, don't they? When we forget this. When we forget this. When, when something changes in the music or the worship style, or we stopped using the hymnals and we started using the screens, or whatever the changes were and whatever the changes have been, and listen, whatever the changes may be, this tends to come up, doesn't it? And we pit the older against the younger, and both sides circle their wagons, and then they go at it. How many church conflicts have arisen right here in this text? Treat the older men as your fathers, the older women as your mothers, the younger men as your brothers, and the younger women as your sisters in all purity. Number two, help the helpless. All of that tends to be an introduction to this, and that if we are God's family, and we are, we ought to treat one another as God's family. Except now Paul moves from just thought and the heart, respect, honor, now he moves into deeds and actions. There's this shift from just what we think and what we feel to physical, material help. How we help each other as the body of Christ. And Paul has in mind here monetary, material help. And he mentions specifically in verse 3, widows. Honor widows, he says in verse 3, who are truly widows. Why widows, Paul? Now, orphans or or, or widowers, or someone else, the singles, why not this group or that group? Why hone in on just the widows? The widows have always held a special place in God's heart. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 11, when God is telling the people of Israel how they're to behave when they come into the promised land, there's all these commandments about how to treat the sojourner and the stranger and the slave and the person who's visiting, the person who's there. And who's in the mix of all that except widows? 
Make sure you honor, God says, your widows. Psalm 68, verse 5, it says, God, the Lord, is the defender of the fatherless, the defender of the widow. If you go into the prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets, you begin to read all the things that really tick God off about his people Israel, all the things that he's going to bring judgment on them for, One of the ones that comes up again and again and again and again is the mistreatment of widows and the mistreatment of the orphans, the most vulnerable and the most helpless in the nation. God has a special care, a special love for them, and he singles them out in this way. There's another reason why in the Old Testament and the New Testament that was the case. Because in the ancient Near East, widows had it pretty bad. Their situation was pretty dire. You think about someone, a man of the house, the patriarch passing away. In our day and time, we have different rules for inheritance and who gets what. And you get to create your own will. At that time, the inheritance went to your sons, period. Firstborn son gets two shares. The rest of the sons divide up equally. If there are no sons, it goes to your daughters. If you have no children, it goes to your brothers or your sisters or whatever other family there were. Do you see a person missing in all that? The widow The wife, uniquely vulnerable in the ancient Near East. I think it's why when Jesus is on the cross, he looks down at his own mother. Joseph has died. He looks at Mary. He says to Mary, behold your son. Talking to the apostle John. He says, behold your mother. And it says from that hour, he took her into his own home. Even Jesus on the cross had a special care for his mother, Mary, the widow, who would now be left with no family and no one to care for her. How about James in chapter 1, verse 27 in the New Testament? He says, you know what pure religion is? Pure religion that is undefiled and pure before God. One of the things he says it is, is that you care for the widows. Paul wants the church to be a family that cares for and supports her most vulnerable if the need is real. In all of this, Paul wants us, though, to understand the primary work of the church. The primary work of the church, as we saw in Acts 6, remember this need arises, and there's widows and orphans being left out of the distribution. This need arises. The apostles are called on to deal with it. What must they do? They must delegate others to deal with it so that they can what? Devote themselves to the teaching of the word. So what is the primary work then of the church? The preaching and the teaching and the proclamation of the word. So that servants are raised up and other ministries are raised up to clear up the time and resources of the church to devote herself to that primary work, which is the preaching of the gospel. So do we ask then, so we don't help at all? No, clearly not. Paul says he wants us to keep our priorities in order. Keep doing what you're supposed to do in the preaching of the gospel. Here's how you can care for those who are truly in need. When you see someone that is genuinely in need of help, especially widows, here are some clear instructions. Look at verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Who's the first line Paul goes to? 
You got widows who are truly in need. Who needs to be helping first? Their own family should be helping them first. Children, grandchildren. Reminds us of Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. One of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. And Paul says it's the least you can do for what they've done for you. That you're making this return, this repayment to your parents who fed you and bathed you and clothed you and took care of you and wiped your bottom and changed your diapers and took care of you through adulthood, hopefully not beyond, though our society is kind of extending even further. Look at what they did for you and think, now what can I do for her, this widow? What can I do for my own family? That's where Paul goes to first. He says, look, before you begin to run to the church for financial aid, for material needs, here's the question. What is their own family doing for them? Now, this does not preclude widows from receiving help. In fact, we go into verse 5. We see Paul begin to detail these qualifications for widows who will receive help. She who is truly a widow... Who is left all alone, has her, set, her hope set on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Let her, he'll later say, let that person be enrolled. Paul says we need to establish some standards here so that the church uses her resources well. A true widow, Paul says, is one who is left truly alone. No one else to care for her. You've gone to that first line of defense, their own family. There's no one. A true widow who deserves help from the church hopes in God. It's not after it. She's not after it for money or materialism. True widows are faithful in prayer, not begging so as to take advantage of the church or anyone. Paul says, we see someone who has cared for her own family, a godly mother, a godly wife, no one to care for them. They're not in this for material wealth, for selfish gain. They're living for God, and they find they're all in him. They're praying women who intercede selflessly for others. They find their supply and their grace in God. Paul says there is a true widow, not, verse 6, someone who is self-indulgent. It's the negative side. If all these other things are true, Also, look at this. They should not be self-indulgent. In other words, they should not only be in it for what they can get out of it. They should not be using the church selfishly, squandering the resources of the church. Paul uses some harsh, harsh language. He uses it twice in this passage, but he uses it first here. He says they are dead. They're depraved. Someone who would take advantage of the church in that way and who would squander the resources of the church in that way, proves themselves, Paul says, not to be a faithful member of the family deserving of help, but a leech, a parasite who's only in it for what they can get out of it. Paul goes on there in verse 6 and verse 7 to describe some further qualifications. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. You see that phrase there, above reproach? What does that bring to mind? Those qualifications of the elders and deacons from earlier. If anyone desires to be an elder, 
If anyone desires to be a deacon, where do he start? Let them be blameless. Let them be above reproach. And so he uses the same qualification here for these widows who are seeking help from the church. If these widows match all these qualifications and they desire the help of the church, let them be above reproach. And again, this is about more than rules and guidelines. Paul's not wanting to set up boundaries to keep people from getting help. But he does want to protect the public witness of the church. I heard one pastor one time say that he wants to protect the church from lushes and leeches who would sponge off the church and abuse the church. That's Paul's goal, to protect the church's witness from the outside and to protect her holiness from the inside. And verse 8, he goes to family again, doesn't he? Let her family take care of her. Paul puts the weight of responsibility there. It's clearly his preference. So much so in verse 8, listen, that he doubts the salvation of those who will not help their own family. Look at what he says. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's some serious language, isn't it? But it's not alone in the New Testament. In 1 John chapter 3, we have this command from the Apostle John to the church to love each other. He says time and time again in those epistles, this is how you know you have been born of God. And what's one of the big ways you know if you've been born of God? If you love your brother. And in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Look what he says there. But if anyone has the world's goods, that's material, physical needs. There's no way to spiritualize this away. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's the question. We know love because God loved us. We know he loved us because he gave to us. So that if your brother is in need and you have the means to help him and you don't, Guess what you don't have in you? The love of God. And you walk in darkness, not in light. And this is a principle for the whole body of Christ, let alone your own family, let alone the most helpless in our midst, our widows and our orphans. Now the tricky part is here, assessing a real need. And whether we're talking about widows or the weekly occurrence we have in the office that someone comes in that's not part of our church, that we've never seen before, that wants gas or a hotel room or help with the bill or help with this or food or whatever it is, we have the task as pastors, as staff, of assessing those needs. When you drive down the road and you see someone holding a sign or someone comes to your door or approaches your car asking for something, you have the duty to assess that need, and it can be tricky because we're so prone and so quickly heading in the direction of a rash judgment based on appearance, dare I say based on race, social standing. I just want to remind us of something this morning. The first principle in our giving and the first principle in us helping people is that God sees the heart. And this goes two ways. This goes two ways. Listen to me. 
God sees the heart of the giver, and God sees the heart of the receiver. So if we're in a position to help, and we never help, and again, we've already talked about the qualifications for helping. We've already talked about not sponging off the church or sponging off people. We've already talked about not being lazy. All that's been covered already. But if we're in a position to help and our answer is always no, 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 no. Why? Because we don't know what they're going to do with it. We don't know what they're going to do with that money. We don't know what they're going to do with what we give them. Here's just a freeing principle for that. God knows the heart and judges the heart of both the giver and the receiver in those situations. So you can give freely with a cheerful, generous, giving heart, trusting that God sees your heart and knows your heart regardless of what that person does with what you've given them. Let God be the judge there. He's going to judge you for your giving. He will judge them for how they use it. Jesus tells the story of a widow who goes and gives all that she has, and it's just one little coin. But she is more to be praised, Jesus says, for her small gift, given in humility, given in secret, than the rich tax collector or the Pharisee that comes by and blows all the trumpets and rolls out all the red carpets for him to dump his whole bank into the offering plate. Jesus says, you know who is more worthy of praise? Who will get more reward from God? The widow who gave all that she had humbly and in secret with a heart of love and not to be seen. God judges the heart, so leave it up to him. But what about the regular needs in the church? Those we're talking about today, these regular needs, the ongoing needs of the widows and the needy in our own church. Well, we should act with charity. We should also act with responsibility. Again, we must remember the central work of the church is the proclamation of the gospel. The central work of the church is not charity. It is not mercy ministries. It is not social work. It is the proclamation of the truth of God's word. But as we are united in the proclamation of the gospel, we should also be, listen, united in love for one another as a result. The one infers the other. We don't say, well, our only job is to preach the gospel. No, we say our primary mission is to preach the gospel. And as we are united in that and in the truth of God's word, then we can be united as a family of God to help and care for one another. When we think of our giving as a church, we must think of missions that our primary goal in giving is that the gospel would be proclaimed, the proclamation of the gospel by our missionaries in our world, in our community, here in our church, as we pay our bills, as we pay our staff, as we pay our office members. And from there we go on and ask, well, how can we then help faithful members? Someone who is a regular, faithful attender, a giver that is in need. That's an easy answer. Of course we'll help them. But then we have to assess the others, don't we? How about the outsider? Those who are not part of our family, those who just come in and need a monetary gift or need food or need something. We have to assess that too. And this is why there's such wisdom in accountability. Whether it's our finance committee, discussing needs as a staff. Pastor Matt's so good about 
ably handling most of the people that come in that have a need. That's just kind of his unofficial job. And he'll come and ask me or come and ask Zane and we'll go ask him and we'll, we'll kind of round the wagons and say this person's been in before. They keep asking for this. We've helped them before with this. Should we help them now? That's the goal in all of that. Committees, teams, accountability, assessing real needs and dealing with them with charity but also with responsibility. We are to care for those in need but we must remember the mission Jesus gave us. Go And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And so Paul says, don't let the church become unfairly burdened with something that is not the primary mission. Do those things. Do them gladly and willingly with grace and generosity. But we must also keep our eye on the goal. And so Paul says, assess who is truly helpless and then help them. Lastly, number three, don't enable sin. Verses 9 through 10 detail these qualifications that Paul gives for widows who are to be enrolled. He says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed, has washed the feet of the saints, and has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Again, we hear this list of qualifications. Where have we heard that before? Deacons and elders. If someone's going to be a godly deacon, if someone's going to be a godly elder, let them meet these qualifications. And there seems to be an official capacity to this too, doesn't it? Let them be enrolled. It must mean that there's an actual roster of these widows within the church who have qualified and need this help. And so just as much as Paul wants to protect the church by qualifying pastors and deacons, he wants to protect the church by qualifying who will receive this kind of help. A reputation for good works, brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and is devoted to every good work. There are some unique qualifications here. Some unique qualifications Paul includes are that they must be 60 years or older. Let them not be less than 60 years of age. Let them have brought up children and been hospitable. In verse 11, he brings up this idea that younger widows should be refused. Why why should they be refused, Paul? Because they desire to marry and will be led astray. Now, wait a minute. Paul, are, are you saying that if a younger woman loses her husband, that she should not remarry? That that's somehow evil or wicked and we, should, we shouldn't help them? No, because in verse 14, what does Paul say he wants the younger women to do? To be remarried, to marry again. So it's got to be more than about just marrying for Paul. And he clarifies in verse 12. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. This isn't just about remarrying for Paul. We don't refuse younger widows help just because they might get remarried. Paul says in verse 13, we don't want to make them idlers. What does that mean? We don't want to make them lazy. We, want, we don't want them to be idlers. We don't want them to become gossips and busybodies. And let's just say it this way. 
If you enable people not to work and enable people not to care and you enable laziness and you give out free money, guess what you're going to get in return? Probably some kind of unholiness that might eventually lead that person into apostasy. So Paul says the concern is not, well, don't let younger women remarry, and we shouldn't shouldn't help younger widows at all. That's not what Paul says. Be careful in how and who you help, so as to protect them, verse 15, from being led astray. There's that word that we saw back in chapter 1, led astray by Satan. If we enable people to do nothing, not have a job, not have a care, not have responsibility, you see very quickly what can go wrong. And it's beyond just making them busybodies or gossips or lazy. They might lose their very soul. Paul says instead, just as godly men are recognized and qualified for leadership, let those who are truly in need also be judged and qualified for this help. And that's the point as we see in verse 14. Paul says, here's what I want. I want younger widows to go on. I want them to be married again, to bear children, to manage their households, and to give the adversary, there's that above reproach part again, to give the adversary no room for accusation. We're helping people avoid sin and sinfulness for the sake of their own souls, protecting them from Satan himself, so that what? Chapter 1, verse 19, they don't make shipwreck of their faith. Paul summarizes all of this in verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Paul goes again to that first line of defense in helping people, their own families. And if there's family in the church who can help their own family, Paul says, don't let the church be wrongly burdened in their help. We see some of this very craziness in our own modern political system, don't we? And and here's how how this can quickly just shift into the church. Most of us, I think, would decry the evils of socialism all day long. What is socialism? Socialism is this idea that we should help everyone. And then the answer comes, well, how do we help everyone? Well, we give all of our money to the state and let the state take care of everyone. That's the part that nobody says, isn't it? When we talk about socialism and and liberality, we think we're just helping everybody. Yes, but how are we helping? Well, you give all your money to the man, and the man distributes it as he wills. Maybe. How often do we do the same thing, though, in the church? How often do we say, well, we should help everyone? And you say, well, I do help everyone. I give my tithes. We should help the widows and the orphans and the needy and the people in prison. You say, well, I do that because I give my money. And I give my money to the church so that the church can go and do that. But then we think that we've done it because we gave our money to the person to do it. Paul says this is not a job that is to be outsourced to the institution of the church. We are an institution. 
And we do help officially from the office as staff, but it is not our singular responsibility to do that. This is the job of the body of Christ. This is the job of the family of God. Give your money. Give your tithes. But not just so that you can avoid the responsibility of helping your brother, your sister, your mother, and your father yourself. Paul says the family is the first line, and then the family of God comes in and helps when they can. Paul says this shouldn't become a burden for the church. You can't just pay someone else to do this. It's hands-on. It's messy. But it's also beautiful. Families take care of families. And the Bible says we are a family. Church, this is not someone else's responsibility. It's your responsibility. As an individual, it's your responsibility. Look around you today. These Older men are your fathers. These older women are your mothers. You glance around, you look down front, these younger men are your brothers. These younger women are your sisters. This is your family in Christ. And I wonder this morning if you understand that. Do your priorities reflect that? Does your schedule reflect reflect that? Does your faithfulness, your involvement reflect that? I want to tell you something else. It's supernatural what we have here. Ephesians 2.19 says that in Christ you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens of the household of God. What we have here is supernatural. I, I'm kind of bad at just calling, you know, a random guy that might walk in that needs help, or a person on the street, or a person at a restaurant, if it's a guy. I'm kind of bad at calling them brother. And I need to watch that. Because while they're my brother in the human race, there's something higher than that. And that's, I have brothers in Christ. And it's a supernatural family because it was paid for and bought by the blood of Jesus himself. That's why when it comes to secret societies, when it comes to secret organizations or clubs, no matter what they are, when it comes to calling someone a brother or sister because of their race or their ethnicity, I understand what we're trying to say. Here's the thing. We need to hold up who we call our brothers and sisters. Jesus shed his blood so that I could call you my brother in Christ. Jesus shed his blood so I could call you my sister in Christ, my father in the faith, my mother in the faith. Jesus shed his blood for that. Let's not diminish it by using it elsewhere. This is the family of God that he bought with his own blood. And he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're my family. You're my children. And you have a place at my table. As we come to our celebration of the Lord's Supper today, 
I want to encourage you as we spend just a, a moment of silence or two here in prayer to confess to the Lord whatever sins you've brought in with you today. Lay them before the Lord. Give them to him. He's paid the price for them already. Acknowledge them. Seek forgiveness for them. And maybe one of the ones we need to lay before him today is just this, that we have not treated each other as the family of God. Think about your priorities. Think about your faithfulness. Think about your time. Think about your love, your affection, your giving. And as we come to the table of the Lord, maybe, maybe we should be renewed and refreshed in our understanding of what this is that we do together. That we come together as the body, the family of God around his table as brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus himself. I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a few moments of silent prayer and reflection as we come into the Lord's Supper together. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.